This is episode 81 with Funded Today. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. This episode is brought to you by BackerKit. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment software service that helps you take care of all the spreadsheet nightmares after your campaign is done. Let me explain. Once you have hundreds of new backers for your product, you're going to be exporting a ton of customer data that is probably going to change. People will need to change their shipping address. They'll want to downgrade some of their rewards. They'll want to buy more rewards. And when you don't have a system in place to help with this, it's actually going to be taking a lot more of your time dealing with customer service admin, and you're probably going to screw stuff up, which is not good long-term for customer relations. BackerKit gives you a full done-for-you software platform online where you can easily manage all of your customer data. And my favorite part about working with them is that once your campaign actually wraps up, they help you get additional sales from your customers by offering to upsell to more rewards or options that you may or may not have on your campaign. They have worked with more than 2,000 projects, delivering more than 3.5 million rewards um, and products. This could be digital products or, heck, even physical products to you guys. They've been amazing to work with. I've partnered with them on the show because I've worked with them in the past and they are amazing. So if you are looking for a partner after your campaign, that's going to make your life super easy. They are the ones to go to. To find out more information, go to backerkit.com. But wait, at checkout, they're actually giving the uncut listeners, which are you guys, going to give you 50% off of their setup services. So when you go to backerkit.com, go to checkout and use the five code uncut, U-N-C-U-T. I'd like to thank the guys over at Gadgetflow for sponsoring this episode. Gadgetflow is a product discovery platform that reaches more than 25 million people per month. They've helped more than 6,000 crowdfunding campaigns and also companies like Sony and Amazon boost their sales and exposure through their community. So if you're looking for another way to get exposure to your crowdfunding campaign, be sure to go to thegadgetflow.com slash submit to find out more information. So we're switching things up a little bit this time. Um, Episode 81, Kirsten Ross, your host. I have the, actually not one, but both founders of Funded Today on the phone. If you guys have been doing your research in the crowdfunding industry, this uh, company has probably came up a few times because they are the leading marketing agency when it comes to Kickstarter projects. Unlike me, where I've helped creators launch more than um, $1 to $2 million on Kickstarter, they've actually helped raise $105 million and have worked with some of the leading Kickstarter campaigns, which happen to be some of my favorites. Bobax Travel Jacket raised more than $10 million. Purple Mattress, which we just had him on episode 76, um, Filippo Loretti, and a lot of like big campaigns can attribute their success based on the work that Zach and Thomas do here at Funded Today. So, Guys, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and I'm, I think this is going to be a killer episode. Excited to be here. Thanks for having yeah. us. Yep, we are. Thanks. So, um, originally, this interview was supposed to be with Zach, but Zach was like, can I bring Thomas on, too? Because we have really differing, because, um, like, Zach, you're more operational, and then Thomas is more the visionary. So, I'm really, I think this is going to be my first interview where it's a three-way conversation, and... That'll be cool. So why don't we get into, guys, just introduce yourself, and then I want to hear a story of how Funded Today came about. You bet. So uh, my name, this is Thomas Alvord. Um, I, I live here in Utah. I'm 32 years old. Um, 
went to law school actually and also got a master's in public administration so it's kind of like an an M- mpa but it, it's a so it's like an mba but it's for like nonprofit and government type work but uh got into marketing when i was in law school and that's just kind of what i got into and then got into uh political marketing i worked with a couple presidential campaigns and uh senate and governor races um so that's what i was doing before zach and i kind of hooked up and, uh, and my name is yeah my name is Zach Smith and I'm the other co-founder of Funded Today. I've kind of been a serial entrepreneur my entire life. I'm the guy who's dragging the radio flyer wagon door to door selling snow cones and lemonade and starting lawn care businesses and things like that. I did get a degree from Weber State University. You probably never heard of it unless you watch basketball. Then you know Damian Lillard of the Portland Trailblazers, one of the best point guards in the NBA, also went to that school. That's my alma mater. I got a degree in accounting. Simultaneous to that, though, I was still running businesses, and one of my businesses was really successful. I didn't necessarily love it, though, and so after three or four years running that business, I sold my equity interest to my partner and took what I learned and kind of became an online e-commerce consultant. Built up several pretty good clients, and one of those clients ultimately became the first client of Funded Today, and that's how Thomas and I came together, and Thomas can maybe tell that part of the story. Yeah, you know, and this is totally a tangent. I always like to look for patterns because I think it's by observing things and looking for patterns that you like gain new insights. And sometimes they're not like these amazing, profound insights that are going to make, you know, you're going to win some award. But what's interesting, what Zach just said, how he took his wagon door to door, that's how, like, because there's seven kids in my family growing up, right? So there's a family of nine, but I was kind of the only one. And I would go door to door and I would like wash people's cars. And I would like go to work with my dad and I'd wash everybody's cars. I would get seized candies. My dad would buy them wholesale. And then I'd go to Walmart and I'd sell like a hundred in a day and make 50 bucks. And I'm like, you know, 10 years old. So I, I think there is something about like, you know, an entrepreneurial drive and, you know, another thing is that, and again, this is like a total tangent, so sorry, but another thing that, that we had kind of realized, cause I was reading about Mark Zuckerberg once and how he was into sports and I think it was tennis and I, I, I thought it was really interesting. And then I started doing research and a lot of like really successful people, whether it's sales or business, usually often they've done sports before. I was totally into sports. I still do kind of Zach as well. And actually, when we look at hiring people, we look at like people who've played sports before because we know that they understand that their input affects the output and that they can control kind of their destiny in a way. Anyways, total tangent, um, but it's kind of fun to look at some of that stuff. So what had happened, Zach had, you know, I was getting into internet marketing and like three years ago, Zach messaged me because Zach was running a campaign for the Roos Sport and he was doing consulting for it. And they had raised like fifty or sixty thousand, and he hit me up and said, "Hey, Thomas, I saw, um, you know, this marketing service on Facebook. I know you do a lot of Facebook marketing and social media marketing." And he said, "Hey, does this look like a good service?" And I reviewed it, and it's like, "Okay, you you spend five hundred dollars, and we'll run targeted ads. You spend seven hundred fifty dollars, and we'll run more targeted ads, and you spend a thousand dollars, and you run super targeted ads." And no joke, that's exactly how it was pitched. And I looked at it and I said, that is truly the stupidest service I've ever seen. Because first off, when you run marketing, why would you not start with the most targeted, the super targeted, right? The most narrow niche to try to get and generate a sell, right? So that model is like backwards. And And one more thing Thomas kind of added was the idea of a budget. Like I had always kind of thought of a budget and Thomas kind of 
revolutionized my way of thinking. And you probably run into clients like this too yourself, Kirsten. But the idea that, hey, I've got $500 or I've got $10,000 or I've got $80,000, whatever the budget is, here's what I want to do, how do we spend it? And Thomas kind of flipped out on his head and said, why would you need a budget? If things are converting and your product costs this and Kickstarters or Indiegogo's fees are this and your credit card processing charges are this and it costs this to ship and manufacture and you're acquiring customers for X, well, if X is lower than what all those numbers are and you're making a profit, why would you have a budget? And sadly, as smart as I thought I was, I felt kind of stupid in that sense that why have a budget? You don't need a budget. Spend as much as possible, particularly during those one to 60 days of a crowdfunding campaign when the conversion rates are so much better than they're ever going to be for the life of your product. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I, so, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. So so basically, I said, look, why would you you know spend two hundred dollars if you don't have a sell, then turn it off, right? And if and if you are generating a positive ROI, then keep spending more money, right? There there is no such thing as a budget. I think it's in big corporations, and you know, I I like kind of abhor i kind of have this disdain for like branding experts now i i suppose there's a place for it if you're like coca-cola or walmart or something but you know i basically say those are the people who get to have a budget and they're not have they don't have to be responsible at all for their results because it's like yeah you know we're getting in front of the people and you know we have a lot of feel good messages it's like no when you're when you're a startup when you're an entrepreneur when you're a small business i mean you always there's a book i love it's uh, called scientific advertising by claude hopkins claude hopkins mm-hmm. um, and it's all about dollar in dollar out how do you track that and you know back in the day with and really it was like direct response marketing that really fine tuned that art where marketers would send out like, you know, 15 different copies of different pitches and they would see which one performs best. And then that, then they would use that one as the basis of all of their marketing. And then they'd send it out to their whole list. But then with coupon codes or phone numbers, they would track what's converting best. Um, you know, and back in the day it was like this art and science, but now it's, it's straightforward. You can place a conversion pixel on, on Facebook. Right. But anyways, again, I, I digress. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think it's an amazing thing that you bring up this whole idea of a budget because I feel that um, the budget conversation does depend on what specialty you're in. Like for me, for example, I will constantly ask my clients when I'm onboarding them what their budget is because I need to make sure that they understand what goes into a crowdfunding launch. Um, Because, you know, I get people approach me like, what can I do with $500? Like, you can't make a video, you can't do anything. Yeah, and let me clarify, (laughs) in terms of the budget, that's the marketing budget, right? You do have to have a budget. Because, yeah, how much are you putting towards the video? Are you going to do a video that's $5,000 or $50,000, right? Are you going to do email lead generation before you launch and spend five dollars or $10,000? Or are you not going to do that? Um, are, you going, are you going, you know, because a lot of people who do press, a lot of firms, it's like, you know, you pay their retainer and they don't really guarantee results. And so you might have your cost there. So, yeah, there are things. And it's like, okay, how much of your prototype are you going to build out before you decide to go crowdfund it? Do you want to just have the idea or do you actually want to have like almost a finished prototype? And that also would relate to, okay, how much budget are you going to commit to this? So yeah, yeah. that conversation of not having a budget really relates to the, the marketing aspect of it. Absolutely. And um, I'm curious, so funded today, you guys focus on uh, paid marketing. So can you walk me through your services? Like Facebook ads is one, um, do you do PR or like what does your suite look like? 
Zach, you yeah. want to handle this? Or? Sure. So basically, we definitely focus a lot on, on spending money. And we have a philosophy at Funded Today. If you can't spend money, then you don't have a business. You have a hobby or a side project or something. So one of the core things we want to do is make sure that we can spend money. That also creates the consistency that you see on Funded Today projects where every single day, X thousand of dollars is raised. And then you see the spikes and the bumps. And those come from our other services. So what are those other services? We do press for every single client now. Now that press depends on the type of client, but every single client is going to get a little bit of press. The clients that during that little bit of press, which we call our due diligence and product validation phase, any of the press that tends to show interest, so journalists, bloggers, media that, that act more interested and excited about the pitch when we make that during those first one to seven days of working with the client, those get full press. And full press is building out press lists, actively emailing individually people that have written about projects similar to yours and and others in the field. So we're working with Juicer right now. And Juicer is this juicing device that makes it so that you never have to clean anything up. And we've reached out to thousands of health bloggers individually and personalized because this project has done fairly well in terms of resonating with the press. Same with Onsen Tao, which is another project we're working with right now. It's it's done well in terms of having an appeal. And right now we're building out active press because during that product validation and due diligence, there was some interest from journalists, media, and bloggers and so now we're expanding our press efforts. So that's another thing we do. Third thing we do, we have a cashback network. And this is probably different than anybody else out there. We have an email list of probably close to 200,000 double opted-in subscribers now. And it keeps growing. I think it's growing really fast now, two to 5,000 a day. So that's that's nice to kind of see that growth. But that email list is incentivized to back projects that Funded Today works with. And we give them a percentage back of every single project that they back. So... On Centel, so, Juicer, okay. they get paid ten. They get paid ten percent every time they back a project like that. So it's nice because crowdfunding is an inherent risk. As Kickstarter itself states, Kickstarter is not a store. Meaning, the idea is you hope you get a product, but sometimes creators don't deliver. They deliver a product that's not as great, or maybe they take forever to deliver. So one thing we're doing to mitigate that risk is offering a little bit of cash back to anybody that's part of our email list, and it's pretty cool. It tracks. You can also refer friends and family and things like that. We have, like I said, close to 200,000 members of this program now, and it's only six months old. So that's this, been a cool um, thing. Is this your, so this, I'm really curious about that third point. Um, so if I subscribe to your newsletter, <laughs> I'm automatically uh, an affiliate. Or is Exactly. It, so, okay. yeah, that's right. So you could share it with other people if you wanted to. And if you go get a friend to back, you know, a product for 200 bucks or something, you'd make... Um, between ten to twenty dollars, because the cashback depends on the campaign. Might be five or or ten percent cashback. Um, so exactly, you can use it for yourself, kind of like a rewards program, where hey, I'm getting ten percent back. Or if you share it, so basically we have a system that tracks. Everyone gets a unique identifier. So if they pledge, and then we track and process all of that. So we, we call it the crowdfunding everybody. credit card in a way too, kind of like the Amex. It's the Amex of crowdfunding credit cards in a way because this is the type of card you want to use when you're backing projects. <laughs> but it's not really a card; it's just a program. I like it. Um, and so, what do you do with this list? Do you use this to um, promote your campaigns internally, or we don't run any projects ourselves yet? This year, I think we'll probably change that. We've got four or five different ideas kind of humming around from start to finish that we're going to be potentially marketing ourselves. But this is this list is strictly for clients that work with us. So if you're a client and you've invented, let's just make it simple, a wallet or a watch, and you pass the due diligence, meaning that one to seven days of testing where we 
see if paid media is going to convert at a positive rate, where we see how press resonates, where we're testing different other channels that we have of marketing. If that works, then immediately after that, we add you to our cashback network and you are then promoted to the to our email list. You're featured maybe a couple times throughout your project. And then all the people on that cashback email list sometimes act as affiliates and spread the word through their friends and family network as well. And it's pretty powerful. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, I'm curious, like one thing that I really like about your service, and I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Jellop and Command Partners still does this, but they you will fund the marketing spend. Uh, yeah, that's exactly that? right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we have something called product validation and due diligence, and that is essentially what every single one of our clients goes through. And like I've said earlier, that's the first one to seven days of a project. One to seven days, not meaning one to seven days when you launch, but one to seven days from whenever you hire funded today. Sometimes people hire us when they've already raised a million dollars. Balbax hired us when he'd raised about four million and we raised him another five. So it just kind of depends on where you're at in the project. But even a client as big as that goes through product validation and due diligence. And essentially, for every single client, we charge a very little amount, a, a very little bit up front, depending. Some, some clients pass what we call marketing success criteria, and those are those are roughly 10 to 20 different criteria that we look at. And based upon your scores and those criteria, you might not have to pay anything up front. But I'd say nine times out of 10, every client we work with, even Balbeck's Travel Jacket, for example, paid, paid money up front. And then based upon that, after that period of due diligence, we cover all the ad spend. So we might be spending $100,000 on your project in, in 30 to 60 days, but you don't have to pay any of that money up front. All of that comes on the back end from our marketing efforts and we kind of act as like a mini bank or a lender for those services. Which is good. And it's obviously in your best interest to make sure you have the campaigns that are making you money. Ob- exactly. Obviously, right? So um, I am... And our, and our argument is the money up front is very, very little because it, like I said, the most it ever is is a couple thousand dollars. And so when we're raising, I think we're raising like $20,000 a day for the Onsen Tao. $20,000 a day and... We, we usually charge about 35% for our services, so... Mm-hmm. Of whatever um, traffic they yeah, drive. Yeah, exactly. So that's $5,000 a day that Onsen Tal is paying us. I mean, granted, that's gross, so we have costs and fees associated with that and all the money that we're spending, but that's way more than, than what we charge for our due diligence and payment, and that's what's getting paid every single day. So our incentive is always in line with our clients in the sense that we want to be having... $20,000 plus days for our clients and not failing due diligence and not raising any money for them. But then again, that's why we have due diligence because it's not like every single project's going to be a home run. Yeah. Now I do want to ask you guys something. Um, in the industry, there have been some negative feedback regarding your due diligence um, with regards to like, I, I get, I'm a business owner too. And if someone doesn't pass a due diligence, your why would you fund their advertising? It just makes sense from that perspective. But what do you do if a campaign pays you money up front and they fail the due diligence? How do you handle that? Thomas, you want to tackle that question? Yeah, you bet. So with the due diligence, it's the same process for everybody. And so we try not to ever pit play like favorites because we don't want and we don't want to in practice say, oh, this campaign looks promising. Let's put like more time and energy and effort to make this work. Whereas these ones that don't look as promising, we're not going to put as much effort, right? So 
what we'll do is we're going to run the same amount of energy, uh, put in the same amount of time, the same amount of effort, run the same amount of traffic, et cetera, for all of the campaigns. And basically what we do is we're going to target different demographics, you know, based off of gender, location, age, uh, interest targeting, psychographic information. And we're going to see what demographics convert. And if it looks like stuff is converting well for at least a handful of audiences, then we'll move forward. But if not, then we might try a few more. And if across the board it's still not working, then what we'll do is we'll we'll talk and you know chat with the client and say, hey, it's not working, and we'll we'll break down. Here's what we tried. You know, here's um, I, I forget in that report. Uh, I, I forget the report. We've we've kind of standardized it so there's a report that shows the different audiences, the conversion rates, um, etc to help people understand, hey, here's what happened, here's why it didn't work. And when we run a campaign, obviously we're trying to make it work, right? Because like Zach said, if we can help a campaign raise half a million dollars, we'd much rather invoice $150,000 than you know a few thousand dollars with a due diligence. So when it doesn't work, you know that we'll then talk with the client and explain why it didn't work. And a lot of people don't look at crowdfunding like this, although they should, is crowdfunding is like a coin, right? And you got two sides. One of it's the funding aspect and one of it's the validation aspect. So really you have crowdfunding and crowd validation. And so with the crowd validation, part of what we're doing is validating if there's a market for this or if there's an audience that is interested in purchasing a given product and, and you know potentially there might it might just be the wrong fit right maybe you have a good product but it's like you're creating a new brand of baby shoes or something and it's like you know kickstarter or indiegogo is just not the right platform because you have more millennials you have more people who are techie you don't have as many people who are necessarily married or who have kids and so it's maybe just not the right platform fit so when it doesn't work we break down the numbers we explain it to the client um and, you know, we, we wish them the best of luck. And sometimes we'll give them some suggestions for, hey, here's things that you could do. And there's a couple uh, times where I really love what we've done with product validation. I would say in many ways, product validation and due diligence came about because of Funded Today's reputation. We get about a thousand people a month that want to hire us. That's just from inbound. <clears throat> That's not from the 200 to 300 that we're reaching out to trying to work with because we'd like to work with them. So in total, call it 1,200 to 1,500 people a month that want to work with Funded Today in some capacity. Yeah. And so it gets pretty crazy trying to trying to deal with all those, and we need serious people as well. But many times a project will – I always refer to Don Wilder. He's a great case study. But Don Wilder ran a project called Timberline Belts, and Timberline Belts didn't do very well. And we were the ones who ran a lot of the marketing for that. But it, I mean, it, it got funded, and I think it raised thirty or forty thousand bucks or something. I, I can't remember the exact figure anymore. But it didn't do what a funded today project does—hundreds of thousands of dollars, a successful one. And Don came back to us, I think, five or six months later, and he understood the process. He understood what due diligence was, and just like Thomas said, he got all the reports, he got all the analytics. And instead of changing Timberline belts, the consensus kind of was that it wasn't a good project. And I don't know if you watch the show Shark Tank. But the sharks are kind of harsh if they don't like something. Thomas and I are probably a little too nice. You know, we're always like, yeah, you know, it's just, it's okay, but here's some ideas. I think we probably should be harsh. We should be a little bit more strict. And no, look, we've done this to, again, just use a watch or a wallet to make it simple. We've ran a hundred other watches and a hundred other wallets. 
if we could, can't make it work, nobody can. Sir, madam, you don't have a good project. You don't have a good – if we can't raise your money, and we couldn't during our product validation due diligence, you need to disband. And there's a lot of value to telling somebody that their baby is not as cute as they think it is because then they won't spend the rest of their life or several years or whatever it is. I mean we have some people – like we just ran a project. The guy had been thinking about it for like 10 or 11 years and hadn't really done anything, and his wife – literally said, can you please validate this? Her word was validate so that he can move on or see if this is something that sinks. And we did. And you know, it, I think there's value to that because a lot of people attach on and latch onto this instead of letting the market decide because they're so afraid of what the world's going to say that maybe they already know it's not going to be a success. But our validation proves that. I mean, literally, yeah, and, and, focus on statistical significance and confidence intervals and all this other, and all this other like really mathematical data that when I say with 99.7% accuracy, if we can't raise your money, nobody else can, it's, it's usually true. And with that, when we started off the very beginning and we were just, you know, a young firm, we, we weren't even sure whether Zach and I, we wanted to do business together or work together. But when we started off, we only charged a percentage. There was no due diligence that, that happened about a year or so after so about 18 months ago is when we, we started implementing it. And, and like Zach had mentioned, you know, part of the issue is when we, we get about four or 500 inbound submissions, okay, every month, okay? And what happened is we're like, we can't work with all of these campaigns. It's literally impossible. And so for campaigns that meet um, – our marketing success criteria, which we have internally, if a campaign meets those, we can waive and do waive the due diligence. We don't charge a due diligence because we're pretty confident it's going to work well. But where you have all of these campaigns, that's where we say, look, we don't know and we can't go work with every campaign. And I know some other agencies who have tried it and then stopped doing it. And we internally actually have this conversation. Do you have a set or a subset of campaigns that come in and no matter what you say, we're not going to work with you, even if they do want to pay us. Right. Cause when we started, we literally had a hundred percent success ratio because we could choose the campaigns that based off of the data we had and targeting and some of the metrics we'd look at, we would know, Hey, we can raise money for this. Right. So and one of the differences between us and other companies is for example, Jell-O who I'd probably say is our strongest competitor. They're a great. They're a great firm, but the reason they are great is because they only work with campaigns that are already successful. Jell-O won't touch something that hasn't raised more than $100,000. And I think their rule even changed, so it's like $200,000 now. Well, give me a project that's raised $200,000 and I'll outperform Jell-O every time. And I'll say that on the record. That's just the difference with us is we still believe in the little guys. We love that we worked with Spine Gym, Timo Hano out of yeah, Finland. And, and that's, and this that's project, $8,097 raised, 41 backers. Now 1.6 million raised over the last year, and we raised him 400 something thousand dollars in like 28 days on Kickstarter originally. Yeah, so, so that would be, and I was going to share that example, Zach. So yeah. people can go Google Spine Gym. They were on Kickstarter, did about half a million on Kickstarter. Then we transitioned to Indiegogo and have marketed their Indiegogo, and they're at about 1.6 or five, I forget, uh, million dollars. But when they came to us, the day before we started they had raised zero dollars they weren't going to fund and they had only raised eight thousand dollars if we didn't have a due diligence that would have been a campaign where we said hey we're not going to work with you just because the risk is too high 
we don't want to spend the money and then maybe not hit the goal because then we wouldn't get paid, et cetera. And so that's, you know, and you I can think- Google this guy's testimonial and you can look at KickTrack and see that day where it was zero dollars. And you can see the due diligence period in action too. We didn't raise money for Timo. I mean, a couple hundred bucks a day for the first seven, maybe even eight days. I think we even extended due diligence a day or two extra on this one because we were still really wanting to make sure we got the data right because it wasn't necessarily singing. It wasn't like a home run right off the bat. And that's because this project had only had 41 backers and 8,097 bucks raised when we signed him. So, and then the Don Walder story, like I said, going back to that. So Apex laptop stands, he launches six months later and we raise him 480,000 bucks or whatever it is. And then like a million more on Indiegogo and demand. So this guy understood the process and he invented something entirely new from a belt to a laptop stand, but he pivoted up 360 degrees, invented something brand new, understood the process, realized that it worked and ultimately became a millionaire because of it. Yeah. And one of the things I often say is entrepreneurs, and I think first-time entrepreneurs run into this problem, is entrepreneurs need to be committed to success and not their campaign or not their product. Because I think a serial entrepreneur understands that, hey, if I do a new venture, it might work, it might not. You just got to go to the market and test it. And, And that's, you know, it really is like this philosophical or theoretical question about how you approach things. We have this joke internally at Funded Today where people have their hashtag, where there was a campaign that came along <laughs> and they thought, hey, this campaign is going to raise a million dollars. This campaign is going to raise half a million, and it's a total dud. It doesn't raise any money. And the and the irony is um, – well, not the irony, but but the thing is – you it it is like nearly impossible to predict how a campaign is going to perform okay because if a campaign it might look like it has so much promise and and here's something else that's really interesting usually the people who come to us and say i want to raise a million i want to raise 2 million dollars and it's like hey yeah you're going to be have the be- you're going to have the best chances if you're working with Funded Today because I think we've had what thirty million dollar campaigns. We've had more million dollar campaigns than anyone else, but still the likelihood is you know it's difficult, but it's still possible. But the people who come with that mentality usually they don't raise that much money. Like with Juicer, hopefully he doesn't mind me sharing this. You know, right now they're at three hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter. I I think they might. End- I-, I don't know where they're going to end, but it's not going to be a million dollars. Not based on the current trajectory, but they had a goal of like a million or $2 million. Right. And and the interesting part is there's other campaigns like better back who we help raise one point something million. I forget the exact number, but when she first started, she said, Hey, if I could hit 50,000, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even, you know, it's, you could have this lofty goal or you could have a goal and you're just being modest and more grounded but it's impossible to know. So you might think you're going to raise a ton and you don't, and you might think you're not going to raise a lot and you go on to raise a ton. And so where we think, Hey, you know, that's why we tell people and, and internally our company knows you don't even internally, we don't say, Hey, this campaign is going to go kill it. Cause literally we do not know what's going to happen. And, and you don't want to get that hashtag. But on the flip side, it's like, Hey, you know, if, if we work with the campaign, do we want to have a due diligence to enable us to try to validate and work with more campaigns? And, and Thomas touched on some really good time. points there too. We had we created basically an expectations calculator 
we call it the probability of raising at least X through crowdfunding on Kickstarter and you go. So what a beautiful name, right? Probably should work on the headline there, but <laughs> Baby steps. Sh- we, pro- <laughs> we should probably share this, share this link so that you can include it in the podcast so everybody can look at, but the average Kickstarter campaign raises 9,308 bucks. The average Indiegogo campaign raises $4,056. And then we, we have the probabilities for raising X amount. So the, the number on Indiegogo, if you raise more than $25,000, you are in the 1.8% crowd. If you raise more than $50,000, you're in the 2.85% crowd on Kickstarter. So those are kind of our numbers. We, we, we shoot a little higher. We consider anything over 100000 a success and anything over 50000 a success on Indiegogo. But a lot of times, because we're funded today and we've raised you know, $12 million for Baobacks when you factor in both his Kickstarter and his Indiegogo and things like that, people start to think, oh, wow, I'm going to raise millions. Like Thomas said, and, and here's some numbers for you, there have only been – 72 campaigns in the history of Kickstarter raised more than $2 million, and only 22 on Indiegogo. And these numbers were updated as of February 1st, so just a day ago. Super so, recent. You know, <laughs> yeah. Now, going to pause. We cannot forget to thank the guys over at BackerKit for sponsoring this episode. BackerKit is a crowdfunding fulfillment software service that helps you take care of all the logistics, spreadsheets, and... Um, Sorting customer data, not only do they help make customer address changes super easy or changing rewards after someone has already bought, but the power is that they also help you um, do upsells and downsells and take care of all that. So if you don't have a system or platform already set up, um, they've already built that for you. And the best part, you can find them at backerkit.com, but they've actually um, created a discount code for the uncut listeners, which are you guys. So if you go to to uh, check out, use the code UNCUT, U-N-C-U-T. They're going to give you 50% off of their startup services, which is amazing. Um, so if you want to keep selling and keep making money and stay super organized um, after your campaign, they are the guys to go to. I've worked with them on a few campaigns now, and they are amazing. Again, backerkit.com. I'm, um, I'm curious. So I had, do you guys know Ravian? Um, yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, so he's actually in our town. He's just like 20 minutes from me. Amazing. So I interviewed him like way back in the day, and he walked me through this revelation of how marketing to a Kickstarter um, community is a lot different than marketing to just a regular e commerce product because of the backer psychology. I'm wondering if you guys, so, <laughs> as honestly, as like basic as, as targeting backer interests or retargeting to current backer lists and whatever, I'm wondering like, what is so different in your approach versus just a typical Facebook ad agency and how you guys approach backers? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just share a couple things. One is, um, and, and Bryce is a smart guy, so I imagine, and I haven't listened to that, so I imagine there's you know probably stuff that he shared that were kind of like his original thoughts. I, I've, I've only done it twice, and I don't do it anymore because I went and I sat down with him while his campaign was live. Cause you know, we were trying to work with him and broke down, Hey, here's what we do. Here's how, you know, just trying to be like more transparent. And so he kind of like ran and took a lot of that. So again, maybe this psychology, cause I, I remember, I mean, I often talk about the, the Kickstarter backer psychology and how it's different and how the dynamic on Kickstarter is different than e-commerce. So again, I'm not saying he copied it, but it's kind of interesting. Um, so how we market to a kick. So basically you're asking 
how the psychology is different or specifically how would that influence your marketing? How would that influence? Because like I I guarantee that the way that you guys advertise to Kickstarter audience um, is with to get someone to back a Kickstarter campaign, the advertising for that is different than just regular Facebook advertising. And I'm curious, like, how that has impacted the work that you guys yeah. do. So I think part of it is, you know, when you're, if you're driving traffic, you can drive traffic on, like, Google AdWords and, like, the Google Display Network. But most people are going to be driving traffic from usually a social network like Twitter or Facebook, right? And so those are social networks where you can run ads on those, right? But then you also have Kickstarter itself, which is also a social network, right? And so maintaining this um, so sociality, this like personal connection, we call it the founder's copy. We're you know, running marketing, and instead of having a hero shot, of the product, right? Where it's just like a really glossy, nice picture of the product or whatever it is you're promoting. You actually have just like a, you know, a basic, almost like you took it from your phone picture of the creator or creators holding or featuring their product, right? And total side note here, Thomas, just to, and then I'll let you continue the story, but remember how Thomas said he hates branding. So when we talk about founders copy with some of our clients, these guys think that they're like the biggest thing ever. And when they see what the heck is this? This doesn't reflect my brand. This doesn't reflect my image. People aren't going to like this product or whatever. And we have to kind of tell them, you don't have a brand. You don't have an image. You have an idea right now that has 200 backers. Let's get this thing popular. Let's get this thing amazing. And we're going to do it this way because we know this way works better than the glossy, fancy, high-res imaging. And, and then we're going to help you with that brand once you have something to brand. So continue on with that. <laughs> <at this point. laughs> That's funny. And I appreciate you share that because I remember – I mean, now we have eight, I think eight full-time reps who, who just run paid media for us internally at Funded Today. And, uh, but back in the day when it was just me and Zach, you know, hitting the ground doing things, I was trying to figure, hey, trying to figure out, hey, where could we find other places to like, you know, A-B test ad creatives and stuff. And there was this old agency I had remember hearing about where it was, they kind of like, uh, democratized, I guess you could say, uh, split testing and you would allow people to create new creatives and it was for like AdWords, but then they rolled it out for Facebook and then you could choose their ad to test. And if it had a higher click through rate, then they would make like 50 bucks or something. They've since gone like corporate and you know, uh, it's, it's different. But anyways, I was like, Hey, I'll hire them. They created some ads for me. And like, I was like, okay, I'll try these. But right when I got them, I do you remember, I don't know if Zach remembers, uh, but it was for Trunkster. It was our first million dollar campaign, which was, uh, oh, yeah. 24, end of <clears throat> December, 2014 to the beginning of 2015. And they sent it over and I looked at, it, I'm like, dude, these ads are going to do absolutely horrible because they were like super glossy. They were shiny. They look so professional. And just generally speaking, you don't want to have that. Um, for your any type of ad because when people are scrolling through their feed whatever social network it might be and they see that and now pinterest might be like different but for like you know your facebook or twitter your brain just kind of turns off and ignores it right because we see ads all the time and and we're accustomed to just tuning it out but if it looks like it's something somebody just posted um and it kind of has that social element 
it's usually going to perform better. Not always, but like, I'll just say the majority of the time, it, it's going to perform better. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I'm also, so with them, I'm just trying to get into the, how you guys operate a little bit. Um, with your clients, do you get access to backer data? So we get, so basically we have them share their login to the, like their crowd, you know, their campaign backend, you know, Kickstarter or Indiegogo. Um, and then we also have, you know, access to the Google Analytics. And that's where we have our own backend where we track everything. So in terms of the backer data, um, we'll use, if there's information or say a campaign has information, like from an email list, we'll, we'll use that, you know, and create like custom audiences. Uh, we, we have a partnership with Experian Data, which is like one of the biggest data companies, where we'll take information or we can give them information and do like... Um, customer profiling uh, profiling sounds really bad uh basically like uh demographic building so we can like create new audiences that then they put into our facebook account that we can market to so there's some of that that we run as well but in terms of like the backer data itself um we don't really do anything with it sometimes we'll use it to like analyze campaigns um if in the future we might work with like a similar campaign and that's part of why we're able to be so successful is because we've worked with a lot of campaigns and so we have um, a lot of analytical information to know what type of targeting type of people to market to but in terms of those I mean we don't ever market to them or anything uh, you know with with email um, because those are you know the creators emails but in terms of like you know for a campaign or a future campaign you know we'll, we'll sometimes do look like audiences which aren't the backers themselves but audiences that look similar and that's really the power behind what you guys do is you own the information on this industry and i think like that is so yep. powerful so instead of like just say i'm just a random facebook ads person me trying to figure out and build audiences to see and test like i would have to do weeks of testing to see what is the right one that's going to convert, but you guys are like, well, we like feel Filippo Loretti, we raised say five million dollars with yep. them. So, this yeah, is and, the I, and I have this, like, yeah, I, I it, sorry, you can continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm done, it's fine. Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, if you like, for example, go to Facebook and you go to target people who like Kickstarter, what's interesting is Kickstarter. There's over like 17 million people who are part of that audience of people who like Kickstarter. But what's really interesting is Kickstarter only has 14 million backers. And when we and sometimes we'll try to run marketing where we'll like target people who like Kickstarter and and usually it doesn't perform that well. Uh, and you don't have a good ROI. And and so again we're using different audiences and you know um, modeling that's the word I was looking for, not profiling. I mean, they both work. It, it almost, I know, but when I hear profiling, I hear like racial profiling. That's like what it sounds to me. It sounds horrible, but modeling. Yes. Um, and, and what's interesting, I, I think, and I, I'm not sure, sure on this, but I think what Kickstarter does, and I think what happens is you have people who, let's say somebody has a juicer. Okay. And they're trying to market it on Kickstarter. So if they go run marketing, they're going to run marketing to people interested in juicing, 
Well, then those people click on those ads and then interact with the campaign. They don't necessarily back, but they kind of interacted with it. So then Facebook sees that, hey, here's this gal named Mary who clicked on the ad and she was interacting and spent X amount of time on kickstarter.com. You know, it looks like Mary's actually interested in Kickstarter, but she has actually never backed a Kickstarter campaign. She might not even know how it works or has any interest in it. And so it's because that number, when we started that audience of people you could target on, on Facebook, I think was like either 9 million or, you know what? I think it, I, I think it was like 9 million when we, when we first started. So over the last two years, it's grown to like 17 million. So yeah, really any marketing. And and that's where it's like this other really interesting concept is this idea that truly a business is not separate from its marketing. Because in a sense, you look at it as like separate things, right? You have your product and then you have your marketing. And it's like, oh, my product's good. I just need better marketing. And a lot of, a lot of times that's the case. But sometimes it, it, I, I, I need to like write this out in a blog post or something to be able to explain it better. But let me, let me share with you an example. There was a wall, uh, not a wallet, a, a journal that we worked with. It, it raised like half a million dollars. Okay. What was interesting about this journal is that the conversion rate was one of the worst conversion rates any campaign has ever had, but it had raised half a million dollars. And when we ran our market, before we even ran our marketing, I looked at some of the analytics and I said, there's no way we're going to raise money for this. And there was another campaign that canceled their campaign. They didn't. They didn't fund. They they canceled it early, and they had only raised five thousand. And we had run some marketing tests, and they they were happening simultaneous. And I told Zach, I was like, "Look, this campaign over here. I think it was a, a watch." I said, "This campaign, our marketing is going to do better for this campaign that hasn't even raised five thousand dollars than this campaign that's raised half a million." And the reason the campaign raised half a million dollars was he was another podcaster who had interviewed tons of influential people. So when he launched his campaign, he was able to tap so many people to send out an email for him. John Lee Dumas? Um, I don't remember who it is. And if I did remember, I wouldn't say who it is because I don't, I don't like to share, um, like negative things about clients. Like if it's a good thing, I'll, I'll share it. But if it's a negative thing, I don't want to like, you know, throw them under the bus or, you know, speak negatively about them. Yep. Respect that. Yeah. So, so basically what was interesting though, is he was able to raise half a million. So in terms of like his product itself, his product itself, I wouldn't say is like a great product. It's well, not really at all. If you compare it to like your paid media, but in terms of like the business generally, because of the assets that he had to tap into, he was able to raise half a million. Now, if his conversion rate was like bowbacks, he would have actually raised like $9 million with all of that traffic instead of only raising like, you know, half a million. So, and I, I don't know why I got talking about this. Um, so really you got to look at you know, what, what you're doing and, and your, how influential you are, right? Cause you might have, and here's another interesting thought, like what it, you could potentially have something like the Amazon echo, which 
by the way, I absolutely I bought like seven of them. They're so cool. I got them for Christmas. Um, well, I got one and then I got two more from my parents and I bought like four more. So it's so fun. But anyways, when, you know, I, I basically buy everything on Amazon. Um, and now Echo makes it even easier to buy stuff because you say, you know, Alexa, order me this and then you order it. But what's interesting is when I get all of my packages from Amazon, it has, you know, the tape they use has Amazon Echo. So literally they're sending millions and millions of packages and subtly they're marketing their Amazon Echo to hundreds of millions of people, right? So somebody else could have created the Echo, right? I mean, it could even have been Google, right? I mean, Google is creating their Google Home, right? But you could have somebody else who created a similar product, but they're not necessarily going to raise as much just because of the assets they have in place. And so the Echo and smart homes actually might not be as amazing. And well, you just heard me say how it's so amazing, but basically it, there might not be as big of a market as it seems like it is. And it could just be because you have a juggernaut named Amazon who has all of this marketing capacity. So, so really when you, I, I guess how, okay, how do we bring all this back? When you're marketing your, your crowdfunding campaign, you, you do have to see what assets do you have? And for most people, it's, hey, it's just me. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm launching this. I don't have an email list of half a million people. I don't have tons of friends I could tap who have, who are affiliates, right? And if that's the case, that's where you, you really got to have a, a product that on its own converts. Yep. I hear what you mean. And that will make a good blog post. So I would action that if I were you. <laughs> okay. Do it. Because it makes sense. Because the way, like, the way that I view crowdfunding, it's a way to start a business. And so even if you don't have a ton of assets behind you, you need to look long-term into this is what you could create. Like look at a company like Purple where they a business was created from a raise of $170,000. They come back to $2.6 million. Um, like there are so many companies that have been created from crowdfunding campaigns that... Absolutely. And, and yeah. by the way, some inside information on Purple because they're a Utah company. They were raising $300,000 a day during their crowdfunding campaign for their other products because of the amount of money that we were dropping into their their Kickstarter campaign for their pillow. So they were getting huge positive externalities for all of their other stuff. We have this thing called the different like animal instincts that your project is. And like Purple's a good example of a bunny. Bunnies multiply. And what has Purple done? They started with one and now they've got four or five different product lines that are all making a lot of money because of the success of the first project. And, and to that, if I could share one thing, for the cereal creator, um, not like your breakfast cereal creator, but like your cereal entrepreneur is what I mean. Um, for your cereal creator, when you go to create another product, I what we recommend is to create a new product because sometimes people will launch like a crowdfunding campaign and then do a version 2.0. And while there is like merit and, you know, value in that, usually you're not going to raise as much as your first campaign. It, assuming you actually exhausted a lot of your paid, mar paid media marketing, PR, etc., your second campaign is not going to raise as much, but the serial creators who come back time and again and raise more money each time, Usually they're creating new products because what happens when you run a crowdfunding campaign, say you get 200 backers, maybe you get 2000, maybe 20,000, you, th those 
backers are so valuable, especially if you create a valuable product, because then they trust you that the next product you create is going to be of high quality or good value, right? And have utility for the end user. And so when you create the same product and it's like a version 2.0, a lot of people, unless they need it again, they're not really going to be interested in buying. However, when you launch your second campaign or third campaign, and it's a new type of product, you have all of these backers that you can email right on the day you launch to then get a big boost for your campaign, which can then boost you into the popularity category on Kickstarter, which then can get you more organic traffic. So then you have even more momentum, which then gives you more social proof because then when you're running paid media, people can see, oh, they've raised this amount. They've already hit their goal. They have this many backers. And then when you're hitting up press, oh, you're already funded. Oh, you've already raised this much. And we have a blog post about this called the Matthew effect, that basically the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it is true that the more successful you are, it is easier to then generate you know, more success. And so by having a new product, when you launch your second time, you're able to be more successful um, just because of all of those positive externalities that kind of snowball. Yeah. And that's, I've seen that happen in every campaign that has come back and doubled or more their first campaign um ex- for the, the exception of one campaign that i saw but yeah yeah it's just insane what happens with it um so in terms of creators that they listen to this interview and they're like wow i never heard of you guys before but i really want to see if we can work together when would you suggest a creator reach out to you guys to start working and do the due diligence yeah, so they they can reach out to us, right? Even if they have an idea, they haven't started building it. It's just an idea in their head or on a napkin. They can reach out, and you know, when, when somebody comes, you know, submits their info, then one of our client specialists gets in chat, get, gets in touch with them to chat. And we have people we're chatting with, and they're not going to launch till like six months down the road. But it's just to start strategizing. Okay, I'm going to launch on platform X. Okay, I need to do this for my video. Oh, I should do this for email legion or not do this. And kind of just start with a basic idea or roadmap. Okay, at the different points, here's what I need to do. And, you know, if it's just chatting with one of our client specialists, you know, we're and and just kind of seeing what the game plan would be or what they might build out. I mean, that could be at any part of the stage. So it doesn't need to be like right before they launch. I mean we do video creation, right? So if somebody's thinking of doing something, they could chat to see, oh, does it make sense to do video creation with Funda today or to do it, you know, by themselves or with somebody else? Um, and again, we, we work with other firms and, and agencies, right, who maybe all they do is like creative work, but then we do marketing. You know, we started off with marketing and have been successful and that's where we've expanded. So really they could come at any point. They could come with literally four days left and we could still get on board and raise them money and get stuff scaled because uh, we have a process to scale campaigns super quick. Um, but yeah, e- even if they just have an idea and they're like, you know what, I want to do something about this and, you know, put my foot out there, um, you know, they could go to our website and submit their info- information even right now. Cool. I have a couple last questions. One of them is that um, with your due diligence and validation, you talked a lot about validation in the beginning to make sure that your product actually has legs. I'm wondering, it sounds like your due diligence and validation happen when you can actually prove that this thing will convert into sales. But, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but how can you 
valid is that what you mean by validate it to make sure it's going to sell or is there anything that you guys can do with the company ahead of time even pre-launch to make sure that it's going to be a winner you know That's we a great have question yeah go ahead dumbs if you want to take it though i we have discussed that and have tried to figure out is there a way that we could make this work um like with email legion, hey, if the opt-in rate is X, we know it's going to perform well. Or That's exactly what I was going to say. We we do email lead generation now for lots of clients. In fact, last month, January, was our biggest month in history for email lead generation. And essentially what that is, is building up an email list of people that are that have indicated interest, not, not to get a free product. By the way, here's a tip and takeaway. Don't put up a landing page and say, hey, opt-in here and have a chance to win a free one. That's just going to get you a crappy list. Literally tell them the product's going to cost X. If you're interested, we've got some early bird slots available. Put your name and email in to be notified when it launches. When we do that and we notice that conversion rates are below a certain number, generally we can make a proactive decision in the sense that this project's probably not going to convert or this one has the chance to do really well. Now, on the latter point, the chance to do really well, we can't really make too strong of assumptions because sometimes our email lead gen performs extremely well, like Juicer, raised 50000 bucks in the first few hours, I believe. But some of the other channels didn't perform as well, even though email lead gen was amazing. So there is that to consider. But it definitely on the negative side, the latter point I made, or the former point I made, where if your product isn't converting well with email lead generation, there's a really good chance it's not going to convert well when you actually go to launch. Yeah, but, but, even, but even then... Because I've chatted with our head of email legion to to go over the numbers and do some analysis and and you know we're still building up more data to get something more like definitive but right you know sometimes a campaign the email legion might not do super well but the campaign still might raise forty thousand right and depending on how much somebody wants to raise that could be like triple or quadruple what they what they want to raise so we do look at that we also do kind of look at um, the Google Analytics and <clears throat> look at the different traffic sources and the conversion rate of different traffic sources and the earnings per visitor of different traffic sources. <clears throat> and we haven't made it a science, but it, it's kind of an approximation. Like if you have an earnings per visitor, meaning for on average, each visitor generates this much in revenue of say $1.50, it's like a pretty decent campaign. Assuming it's like... Uh, again, the numbers are hard because what if a campaign only has like 500 visitors when we come on and like five of those visitors were friends and family who each put in a thousand dollars? Well, then the numbers are all skewed, right? And it's kind of hard to tell what the numbers are. So we don't really have a way, although we multiple times we've, we've kind of kept trying to look and just one more thing, kind of a long winded answer on the flip side, there is a campaign. I, I won't say who they are. Because again, I don't like sharing negative stuff. They raised millions of dollars. It's it's a well-known campaign, um, and it's it's none of the campaigns that we spoke about or have mentioned. It's this campaign. Um, this campaign raised millions of dollars, and then after their e-commerce was struggling, and post-campaign we do some e-commerce, although we're kind of selective about it. Some e-commerce marketing. Uh, they had changed their pricing. There was also some uh, press about them that wasn't favorable. But anyways, literally we spent like a few thousand dollars in paid media and didn't generate one sell. So 
you could have a campaign that raises millions and then for whatever reason after the campaign because the price point's different or press that was negative or whatever, you might not have a good campaign. And then one last example, we had a campaign that raised $10,000 in their whole campaign, but then going to Amazon because we we also do uh, Amazon marketing for clients. On Amazon, they're generating $10,000 in sales every month, right? So now you have a one product that's doing 120,000 in sales just on Amazon in one month. So that's where it, it really is so hard. And that kind of goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning. We have something called the, the seven P's where we analyze what is it that might be causing this to not generate revenue. You know, one of the P's is the product. Is it a bad product? Another one's the promotion or the marketing. How is it being promoted? Is there just a lack of traffic? Uh, another's the presentation. How's the video? How's the landing page? Another's the pricing. Is the pricing too high or is it too low? Another one's the person, right? If you have somebody who used to be the head of of uh, DreamWorks or Pixar Studios and they're creating some type of new video, you know, show, you have so much credibility. So there's more. It, there, people are going to be more likely to back. Um, but then another one is you have your um, platform. Is it the wrong platform? Hey, maybe you shouldn't be on Kickstarter. Maybe you shouldn't be on Amazon. Maybe you need to get into Babies R Us. Maybe you need to be on Amazon. And so those are all the different things that we kind of look at to, to tweak or say what's working, what's not. And I think those are six Ps. I'm not sure what the last P is. I'd have to look, but anyway. Yeah, I um, just have one question. I just want to go back to uh, you building an email list for your guys before launch, which partially helps validation. You, you mentioned like if they don't convert, that's a marker for this having problems. How, what are you what are you measuring the conversion based on? Is it visits to landing page um, converting to an email list? Like, yeah. So we'll send traffic. We'll have a squeeze page that just has you know those who aren't familiar with the term squeeze page. It's just like one page, and pretty much all you can do is put your email in and click submit, right? So it's not like you have a logo and you can go browse around the website and get distracted. It's like there's only one thing you can do on the website, and that's submit your information. Um, And so we just have, um, well, we have a few different templates that we use, and so we'll just look at the conversion rate. Our average, you know what, I here, while I'm saying this, uh, I'm going to pull up just to see what it is exactly, but I believe the average conversion rate when we run traffic is going to be for the opt-ins is usually around like seven percent or so. Let me look at some of these campaigns that have a lot of visitors. Um, so I'm looking at one here. This one for the green banana paper, it has a fifteen percent opt-in rate and it has one hundred twelve opt-ins. Here's another campaign, Lamore. It has 386 visitors, a 10% opt-in rate. Um, here's another campaign. We've actually sent 4,784 visitors, and there's only been 114 opt-ins. It's a 2.38% opt-in. That's actually one of our lowest. We we talked with the client and said, "Hey, this isn't performing well." It's it's kind of a. We usually focus primarily in like product design and technology, and this one's more in like the documentary film. 
And so, we, you know, it's it's a lot lower, but at the same time, you might have people that are not contributing to get some product back, but they just believe in this documentary or this cause, and they might contribute 5000 bucks. So we talked with the client and said, hey, it might work, it might not. And that's where, and that's kind of like a similar to the product validation. It's like, hey, there's this money, you know, I don't know if it's the best way to spend this money, but we can do it. Here's the pros and the cons. And, you know, we let the client decide. Um, but yeah, a lot of these campaigns, I'm looking at an 8% conversion rate, 9%. So that's kind of what you're looking for. So if you ran traffic and had basically like a one or 2% conversion rate, it might be cause for concern. But again, here's the other thing. Sometimes products require more time and more space to tell the story and usually with the templates we're using we don't like we we try to make it short and sweet and just have like four bullet points with like a hero shot of the product itself and like a header right so super quick people can look at it see if they're interested put in their email or not so building out and like a b testing it just takes a lot more time to really you know sell a product and that's where okay sometimes a campaign you know, people just to put in their email for a pre-launch, they're not going to, you know, spend a whole bunch of time. Whereas if it's more their crowdfunding or a product page, you know, somebody would be more interested or likely to spend the time. So again, that's a really bad answer because it's one of those bad answers like, oh, it depends, right? And those are always the worst answers because it's like, well, give me something. But, you know, if somebody wanted something, I would say, you know, if you have an 8% conversion rate, you're, you know, kind of in a good spot there. Yeah, no, I know. I actually think you had a good answer because people who are new to e-commerce and they're building their first squeeze page, they have no basis of comparison. And so even you just rambling on about what are the different factors you take into consideration when when figuring out what a good conversion rate is, like that's valuable. So Yeah, well, and, yeah. and here's the other thing too, where like marketing gets a little mushy is traffic source make such a big difference and and you know there's other there's services you can use that like allow you to create like squeeze pages and there was a uh i was running so my sister tiffany alvord she's a huge youtube artist she writes her own music she has like 2.5 million uh youtube followers and so i was you know a couple years ago i was helping her with some marketing because that's what i do and i was putting some uh on her YouTube videos, I would put a, an, an overlay, right, with a call to action, and we were when we had a squeeze page where people could opt in and learn more about Tiffany and learn more about her music. So when people would click from the YouTube overlay ads on her videos, the conversion rate on the landing page was like six or seven percent. Okay, but then when we ran the traffic from her because then we would do some Facebook pro posts and like promote it and the traffic from her Facebook page, the conversion rate was 50%. So the exact same landing page, the exact same landing page, but the conversion rate was like six times better, six times higher. And so really, uh, again, it comes down to what channel you're using, right? And how targeted is it? And again, I guess this brings us full circle to when Zach first hit me up, 
I had only met Zach once. We were literally just Skype friends because Zach does everything on Skype. And he, anyway, so we had, you know, just chatted on Skype and he said, Hey, is this a good service for Facebook? We're 500 bucks run targeted ads. And that's why I said, no, that's stupid. You always want to run with the most targeted because whatever you do, the more narrow, the more niche, the more targeted, um, the better your results going to be. So, you know, if we were to run stuff without, you know, going back, we have a lot of demographic audiences uh, and and modeling. We're able to get that eight percent opt-in with the traffic um, that we drive because of those audiences. If we didn't have any of those audiences, our opt-in rate opt-in rate might actually be around between like three to five percent. So, if somebody doesn't have an audience that they're starting off with, then that that's actually maybe a more of a benchmark that I would recommend them to look at um, in terms of them starting fresh and trying to figure out what would be a good opt-in rate. Now, would that be a great opt-in rate? Absolutely not. Like you'd want to like shoot higher. I mean, I've had landing pages where literally the opt-in rates like 95% on a campaign I I ran. Um, But again, every campaign is, is always going to be different. I love that. I love how you just came full circle to here we are today, years later. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So guys, uh, this has been fantastic. Um, do you have any famous last words before we get into where people can find out more information about you and then wrap it up? Yeah, I always say, you know, don't give up. Um, really, it comes down to belief and desire. If, if you want something... Because when I graduated from law school, I was married and then had a kid. And for like three or four years, well, I guess part of law school too, we were dirt poor. And my wife kept saying, Thomas, you got a law degree. You're an attorney with the Utah Bar. Why don't you go get a law degree? And literally, I was going door to door and selling like satellite and like these discount cards um, that like coupon books that I sold like through college. And, you know, I'm an attorney. I have a master's degree, but I'm doing this stuff because on the side to make money because I kept trying because my dad was an entrepreneur. He started his own, uh, you know, fire alarm and communications business in Southern California. My, my older brothers, I saw their business. That's why I saw him like, dude, you guys are like making all this money with Google AdWords with the supplement company they had. And I was like, man, you guys make money while you're sleeping. And this is amazing more than I'd ever make, you know, being an attorney. So I was like, I want to try to, you know, figure something out, make something work. Um, and I saw that, you know, my, my in-laws, they're, they're pretty well to do. They own some, uh, water parks and miniature golf and in all, in all of our poverty, they didn't actually help us penny, which I was glad for. Right. Cause it, it made me have to fight for it more and not be dependent. And I don't think they were too happy either. They're like, Oh, why don't, why don't you just go get a job? But I realized, you know what? The people who like make a difference in the world and who, you know, don't get paid hourly who make money, they own things, they own businesses. And I, and I've told Zach this, I, I've said, you know what? The reason attorneys make a lot of money is not because they practice law. It's because they become partner at a firm. And so then they're making money off of the earnings of the whole company. Essentially they're becoming a business owner, right? It's the same as if you're investing in real estate or investing in the stock market and you're getting those returns. It's because you then have equity in it. And as it, as the venture grows, you're getting a return on that. Well, the best way to do that 
is by starting well to have a bigger part of the pie is by starting a business and so my anyways that again was a huge tangent i've done a lot of tangents on this podcast but my recommendation is if you have something it can be hard but you just have to go for it literally you listen to all the people who talk about success it's just doing it it's nike's phrase just do it and being committed and just and to just keep pushing and i mean you know, people sometimes say, oh, owning your own business, you know, because you basically are becoming a business owner if you're launching a crowdfunding campaign and you're going to turn your product into a business. And, you know, people say you I, – I, I mentioned to, to Zach the other day, I actually like kind of hate holidays, but I like vacation. And and what I mean by that is I hate holidays because it's like, dude, this is super inconvenient that Christmas is tomorrow because I have this stuff I'm trying to get done. I, I That sounds like so like horrible of me to say. Hopefully my wife never listens to this podcast, but basically it's like with a vacation, you know, businesses ebbs and flows. And so when, when you have a break, you can go take a vacation and you're good. But at the same time, you're on call 24 seven, right? Yeah. You don't have hours you have to work because you're working 24 seven. I mean, two nights ago, I'm, I'm like so tired right now. Two nights ago, I was up till 4am working with our developer because we had to get some stuff done and I had to get up at seven in the morning. I mean, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. So I just shared kind of all the bad stuff. I guess I was, here's the reason I was sharing all of that because in saying, just do it. I want to paint a picture of what it means to just do it. But when you do that, it's so much funner, right? Like going to work and even the people in our company, they say, you know what? I hated my last, I've, I've, I've never liked going to work, but when I wake up, I'm super excited because it's always something new. It's always something different. It's always an adventure and you're pushing yourself and that's, and that's what you're going to get with crowdfunding. So if, if you've been listening to this podcast, if, if you have an idea in your head, like start doing something and don't overanalyze too. like, just do it. Yeah. I think Nike slogan is my favorite ever. Because whenever I'm lazy, I just look at my running shoes. I'm like, ah, there we go. Just, <laughs> just do it, right? So, there you go. Man, this has been fantastic. I think we can go on for another two hours. Um, <laughs> but if people are chomping at the bit and want to work with you guys, where? what's your website? Funded.today. <clears throat> Maybe awesome. I should say that better without a cough. But funded.today, not .com, although we do own fundedtoday.com as well. And my closing point, since Thomas kind of said a few things, fell fast. We've talked about pivoting the entire time here. My entire life has actually been a pivot. I did different. I think you can ultimately do what you love. And I do love seeing entrepreneurship come to fruition. I love that we are a part of like the cutting edge things and the products that we bring to life that ultimately become huge success stories. I mean, one of our clients, Trunkster, got the biggest deal in Shark Tank history Valbax is an internationally recognized brand now and the sixth most funded project of all time. We, we're part of some really cool things, but failing fast, pivoting quickly. Thomas said this at the beginning of the podcast, and I'd just like to highlight it one more time because it stood out to me, and I don't know if he'd ever said it before, but I loved it. Entrepreneurs need to be committed to success and not a specific idea, invention, business, or product. That's that's the takeaway here, and that's what I did. I, I didn't love one of my first businesses, and so I pivoted and changed, and then I, I liked that one. But it didn't work out as well, and then ultimately Funded Today came, and I was committed to success. And ultimately, that success led me to doing a business that I love, and we've had tons of success for both Thomas and I and many of the people that work for us and hundreds of our clients as well. So it's been exciting. Yeah, what you say it speaks to my heart too because that's the 
reason I'm doing crowdfunding. Like, I don't know many other um, opportunities we can have in life where we could be at the start of some really amazing opportunities like this and businesses. 100% agree. So, yeah, 100% agree. All right, guys, this has been amazing. Definitely one of my favorite podcasts. I just want to thank both of you for coming on the show, um, making time for this as well. Thanks for having us. It was great. Hey, guys, this wraps up another episode of Crowdfunding Uncut. Thanks a lot for sticking out to the very end. Um, If you are in the beginning stages of planning your campaign, or hey, you even want to look and see if crowdfunding is an option for you after listening to this podcast, head over to crowdfundinguncut.com. I have a freebie. It's the ultimate physical product launch checklist. So if you are... Uh, wanting to see what is involved in the launch process. It's a full six-month system and timeline to see exactly step-by-step what you have to do to have a successful campaign. Um, It's based off of the five campaigns that I've run, raised multiple seven figures from it, and I wanted to pass that on to you guys. And uh, again, crowdfundinguncut.com. And just to wrap this up, thank you in advance for a honest iTunes review. If you are finding this show helpful and whatever, go to iTunes, Crowdfunding Uncut, give us a five-star review, and um, or even something honest. If you're getting value from this, it's going to help the show get found by more people in the crowdfunding product launch space. So thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.